please stand and give your attention to the reading of God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This week's message is on Psalm 2. It is a, uh, a discourse on the way to find Jesus Christ in Psalm 2. And um, if the sound team could bring down the mic, it's a little bit uh, hot, I think. Um, that would help me up here. Uh, it may help you out there, too. Um, I find this passage to be deeply helpful in the context of the introduction of the Psalms. We looked last week at how the Psalms were a collection of songs and instructions that the nation of Israel was to use both in public worship and in private reading and in celebrations, times and seasons where they would gather before the Lord and they would sing these songs. Uh, the songs would be used in a call and response fashion. They would be used in a teaching fashion, but they would also be used in a way to praise God. But we noticed Psalm 1 and now Psalm 2 actually are not songs directed to Yahweh. They are songs directed to God's people. And now we see in Psalm 2 to the nations of the earth. And so we, as we look at Psalm 1 and 2 as the introduction to what the Psalms are, we are confronted by the fact that they're not actually songs to God. Um, they are songs from God through his authentic writers, David and the other ones who composed the Psalms, and they are to instruct and inform. And then once they inform, then they become songs that we, in reflection, turn back to God and praise him. 
And so in the context of what we did last week and all the prior weeks this year where we've been looking at a passage of the Psalms, I wanted to highlight what my main goal in this collection of sermons on the Psalms is. My main goal is that as Christians, we would learn to read the Bible as Christians. And what I mean by that is there is a non-Christian way as a Christian to read the Bible. There is a way to read the Bible that does not acknowledge the chief subject of the scriptures, which was the unveiling of the Messiah, preaching his sufferings and subsequent glories, as we'll see. And so when Christ was on the earth, he knew that his disciples would have a chief command as they gathered his church together through the preaching of God's word. He commissioned his apostles with a unique task to disciple the nations and to teach them to observe all that he commanded. And if you remember just prior to this commissioning, we hear in Luke's writing that, that Jesus had explained to some of the disciples that all of, the, that all of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms as a whole refer to him. And so when we understand that the apostles have a chief authority handed to them by Jesus Christ to teach all the nations to observe what he commanded them, one of the things he commanded them is to see and savor the portions of scripture, indeed every scripture, which shows forth the glory of Jesus. Therefore, as Christians, we must acknowledge how the apostles interpret the Old Testament scriptures. It is not enough that we read the Old Testament and we look at, as we saw last week, the problem uh, with most modern scholarship is it's primarily focused on what the original human author intended to say in that passage, which is merely a supposed notion, it can't be proved, and then also what the original audience would have understood. But when we see how the apostles use this passage in the New Testament, we cannot go back to reading this passage as if they have not commented upon it and used it in a specific way. To fail to read God's word, one section, in in context of the whole is to fall into a spiritual myopia or a blindness. Um, It's kind of like uh, blinders that you might put on a horse. They're intended to keep it from noticing things that would cause it to get off track. That's what we do when we read a portion of scripture without acknowledging the way that that scripture is used and referred around the rest of the scriptures and the passages. As we learn how the apostles have perfectly applied these prophecies to Christ, we too gain a sense for how to read with new eyes. We are not supposed to see how the apostles use a particular passage and then say, that's the only passage in the Psalms that can refer to Christ, or only the specific passages which the apostles have referenced refer to Christ. No, it's, it's kind of like learning to play by ear. You learn to play with a group of people, and you join in, and you imitate their use. Their faithful, you faithfully imitate their use. So, as we see, based upon the apostolic use, this psalm concerns four major ideas. Israel's rejection of the Messiah and the subsequent warnings of judgment against Jerusalem. And then it moves on to the vain attempt to murder the Lord's anointed, casting off his bonds and and fetters. And after that, 
vain attempt, God vindicates him by raising him from the dead. Then in the ascension, Jesus sitting down upon the throne of God, beginning to reign over all things and giving his people great help by the Holy Spirit whom he sent at Pentecost. And then finally, the the psalmist then addresses the nations, telling them that all nations should repent and all men should seek refuge in Jesus Christ. So those four ideas, the, the rejection of the anointed one, the Christ, God's wrathful response to their rejection, Jesus' vindication and subsequent reign, and finally, the prophet's warning to Israel their day, and as it has come down through the ages to all nations everywhere. Through the faithful recording of the apostles' words in the book of Luke, we immediately see how the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is foretold in this psalm. In Acts 4, the apostles Peter and John have just been rebuked by the Sanhedrin and they've been told to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. They respond to them, whether it is right to obey God or you, you be the judges, but we cannot stop speaking. And when Peter and John return to the apostles and the other disciples who were with them, they begin to take counsel together and they know exactly what Psalm to turn to. Verse 24 of Acts 4, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, I love the power of what they're about to say, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. They've just taught us that David is speaking these words by the Holy Spirit, not of his own accord, and therefore we must read them by the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the apostles, quoting the psalm in Psalm one, why, Psalm 2, verse 1, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they interpret. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I love this passage. This psalm and the apostles' use of this passage is a wonderful, precious passage. Because what the apostles have just done is they've not only interpreted who the nations or the tribes are in Psalm 2, that being the the Israelites and the Gentiles taken as a whole, but they have also clearly, transparently identified Jesus as the Christ. They say the word Jesus, and then they say whom you anointed. Now, when they say anointed, they do not specifically mean any one time of anointing, but we understand them to be describing how he was clothed with power. In in Acts 10, we hear them say how he was clothed with power by the Holy Spirit and went about doing good. So we know that the apostles understand Christ to be anointed at his baptism at least. But as we see in Acts 2, two chapters prior, we also recognize that Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit when he ascended to sit on the throne. Therefore, in this passage, the Gentiles' rejection of the Messiah was represented by Pilate and the Romans who crucified Jesus on the cross. Pilate, as it were, is a representative figure by which the Gentiles of the earth are renouncing and rejecting and putting to death the Messiah. The the Gentiles have killed the true king of Israel. 
The Jews likewise at this time rejected their true king by Herod, a false king. It's important to remember that Herod was not a true Jew. He actually was not Jewish, and he had no rightful claim by by heritage to the throne, but had set himself up as the king of Israel, but was a false king. And not not only through Herod did the Jews reject the Lord Jesus, also through the Pharisees and the crowds which denounced him. More importantly, these apostles recognize and identify Jesus as the anointed one. The word Christ is not Jesus's last name. It is a title. It is a designation. It is an identification that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And in the context of the Old Testament promises, the anointed one was not just someone who would have power. We had seen many prophets like that, Elijah, Moses, but rather the anointed one was the one who was anointed to be king. If you remember, Saul and David were anointed to be king. And then we've seen time and time again in this church in 2 Samuel 7, how God promised David that he would never lack a man upon the throne. And immediately after David's first son, Solomon, the kingdom being ripped in two, the great problem and dilemma in Israel is who will be the king? to sit on the throne of our father, David. And so the apostles have said, God has fulfilled his promises to David in Jesus Christ. He has sent an anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The psalm continues in verse three, the nation saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Their murder of Jesus was a vain attempt to throw off God's rightful reign over them and the rest of the nations. I love what takes place in this passage from Acts 4 because the apostles have said that they have tried to in vain kill the Lord Jesus, but they merely did what you had predestined. I have found no great metaphor in popular culture by which to even compare this sort of substantial, continual victory. It is as if God has all the cards in the hand, and they are merely playing cards that he exactly knows what they're going to play. All metaphors break down at the sovereign display of God's power. It's just like in in the time of Joseph, when Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That was a foreshadowing of what would happen to the Lord Jesus. Even as the nations are trying to get rid of his authority, they do the very thing by which his authority is magnified and demonstrated as perfect and total and clear. Even when trying to rebel God, they're obeying God. Not in heart, not in will, but they're obeying God in external actions. They're causing to come to pass, which God has predestined. God therefore denounces and will demolish all such tyrannical rule. Rather than receive God's law as authoritative for their nations, for their cultures, for their way of life, these nations, the Gentiles and the Jews, would rather reign as God themselves. They would not have Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed one reign over them, but rather they are trying to rip apart his bonds and his, as the King James calls it, fetters. I love that image of this, the law of God constraining the wickedness of the the nations. And the nations, according to this psalmist, are raging against the anointed one. And they break out for a singular moment and they're able to strike the anointed one. But that, according to the apostles, was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Responding to the nation's vain attempt to reject the Messiah, God then laughs at them in the futility of their plan. And that is the appropriate response for Yahweh to take, isn't it? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The point is that in distinction from the nations and the kings, God has a hill, a people, whom Jesus said, of whom Jesus said, you are a city on the hill, on a hill. And then Yahweh says, this is my king. Your kings are raging against me. I've established my king. You can't defeat him. The apostles' teaching in this passage is invaluably helpful because it shows the total sovereignty of God. The reason that God laughs at their foolish plans is because they could only do, as Acts 4.28 says, whatever your plan and your hand had predestined to take place. As we've said, even when they are trying to disobey God, they are causing God's will to be done. Mercifully, however, God's wrath against the nations in the rejection of the Messiah is not immediately dispensed, but rather he is patient and he gives them great warnings. Before his wrath is displayed in power, it is first displayed in speech. In the scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments, before God ever brings judgment on a wicked people, he thoroughly warns them before executing his judgment. He gives them time to repent. If you remember Jonah, when Jonah goes to Nineveh, what is he supposed to say? He's supposed to say that the city is doomed. And what happens at the announcement of doom? Nineveh repents. The king of Nineveh does an amazing thing. He says, proclaim a fast. Do not even let the animals drink. What an amazing response to a doom prophecy. And they repent. And what does God do? Even after announcing a sure, certain coming judgment, when the people of Nineveh repent, God relents from his judgment. The point is that God is speaking to the nations in his wrath. He's speaking to the tribes in his wrath before he then will bring his wrath. We see this in more than a dozen places in the New Testament. It is one of my favorite things in the New Testament, which is almost never preached. Um, Many of such things exist in our world today. But I wanted to highlight three or four major places Um, One starting at the least convincing argument and then moving to the most convincing argument. In John 4, when Jesus is with the woman at the well, she says, our fathers, the Samaritans, say that you should worship on this mountain, but you in Jerusalem say you must worship there. And his response to her is, there is an hour coming where you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What he's saying there is shocking to an Israelite because he's saying there's an hour coming. It's almost happening that the worship in Jerusalem will end. And that would have been heresy for a first first century Jew. The reason being is they recognized worship of Yahweh in the temple as the chief countrywide obedience to God's law. The sacrifices in the temple had to continue for Israel to be right with Yahweh. So that's the least convincing argument. 
In Matthew 21, 33 through, 30, uh, through 46, before his death, Jesus clearly warns in a parable that the owner of the vineyard, the father, would take the tenants who kill his son away to death. And then he would take away the kingdom of God and give it to a new people. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem, he laments over it and weeps, saying, he wished that even on that day that he arrived, that they knew the things which would make for peace. Yet, in that very same breath, he prophesied against that generation, speaking of a total siege and destruction of Jerusalem, very akin to what had taken place against Jerusalem in the first exile, that the city would be surrounded, it would be cut off from the land of the living, and that it would be circumcised in a sense. A hole would be dug around it, and they would be put to death. And he says that it will happen upon them and their children, that generation. Finally, in response to Israel's rejection of the Messiah, God spoke to the people of Israel by the mouth of the prophets. In Acts 2, verse 40, Peter says to the people, save yourselves from this wicked and crooked generation. That is to say, he was warning them that there's a means of escape by which the people can flee Israel, and they flee Israel by joining God's people, the church. At this point, again, the psalm changes voice. First, we've heard the, the psalmist's voice and then a quotation of God's voice. And now the psalm once again changes voice as the anointed son begins to testify, adding his voice to his father's prior witness, following the pattern as we've seen throughout the scriptures that every idea, every major fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. The father has spoken and now the son adds his voice. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Once again, in this verse, the teaching of the apostles helps us to see how these words actually concern the resurrection of Jesus, not the time of his begetting. I just want to go back here and look at the problem that I'm seeking to address. The apostles Use, the, use this verse in such a way as to clearly teach what this psalm is saying. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When I lived in Salt Lake, this was one of the verses that they used to prove that Jesus was not eternal because he was begotten on a day. And as the apostles use this passage, we see that the heretics who use this passage to maintain that Jesus came into being twist the scriptures because of the again because of the way that the apostles use this verse the bible never implies that there was a time when the son was not jesus himself taught of his ex eternal existence saying in john 8:58 before abraham was i am now, if you don't know, Abraham is thousands of years before the time of Christ. It is impossible for Jesus to say that he was before the time of Abraham unless he existed before he was born. In fact, Jesus' use of the phrase, I am, is a clear invocation of the name which was given to Moses to announce to the people of the coming deliverance that he would bring through uh, from Egypt. This Hebrew writer, the Hebrew writer quotes this important psalm twice in this exact same verse. And in fact, when thinking about it, I was, 
I was drawn to the conclusion, I know of no other place in the New Testament where the, a quotation comes about in two places in one epistle. That's how important this verse is to seeing the identity of the Christ. The two ways that the Hebrew, quotes, the Hebrew writer quotes this psalm is first to show Jesus' eternal existence and his eternal priesthood. First in Hebrews 1.5, the Hebrew writer declares that Christ is not like an angel or another part of the creation, but rather was begotten from an eternal today. That is, when we hear the words today, it is, it is an anthropomorphism of God's counsel. That as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have perfect unity, perfect counsel together, that from before all time began, they had purposed and planned to send the Son into the world to atone for the sins of God's people, gather together the church, send forth the Holy Spirit, and one day bring a kingdom to the Father, as we heard in the Sunday School Hour in 1 Corinthians 15. The point is that the Hebrew writer says that Christ is not a creature because God said, today, you are my, you, today I have begotten you. So the Son was not begotten on a particular human day, but as regards eternity, eternity is considered one eternal day, a, a reign of God's light. The second use is in Hebrews 5 and in Hebrews 7, verses uh, 5 and 6 in Hebrews. Secondly, the, the Hebrew writer says and demonstrates that Christ is a priest forever, not a priest when, when he begins his earthly life, but rather he compares him to Melchizedek, as it says in Hebrews 7.3, who has neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so we understand clearly that the Hebrew writer applying to this verse, directly quoting this verse, is using it to describe Christ's eternality, not Christ's birth or coming into existence on a day. So moving on, we hear this used again by the apostles, not just the Hebrew writer, but Paul and Barnabas use it. When they come to Antioch, they preached in total accord with the words of this psalm. If you want a, a wonderful homework assignment for your Lord's Day evening in family worship, I would encourage you to go to this passage and compare it to the psalm. It is, if, it is as if the, the, the apostles used this psalm as the outline for their sermon. Paul and Barnabas preach and illumine this obscure verse perfectly. They say in Acts 13, we bring you the good news that, God, that what God promised to the fathers, this, has he, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So they apply this phrase, today I have begotten you, not to the birth of Jesus Christ or the coming into being of Jesus, presuming him not to exist before all ages, but rather they say that this is a proof of the resurrection, that when God says, today I have begotten you, they mean to say demonstrated. Though he was eternally begotten, that is, Jesus was begotten of the Father from before all time, God in the resurrection demonstrated the Son as his Son. It's to be understood as this passage is talking about the vindication of Jesus Christ. Why was Jesus put to death? 
In that passage that we read from the Gospel of John, immediately after what Jesus says, they begin to pick up stones to kill him. Why? Because he called himself the Son of God. Jesus was killed because he called himself the Son of God. This usage by the apostles to refer to an internal event as being proved in a temporal event, that is to say, something which God had done from eternity past was then revealed in a time-space moment, the apostles use this sort of language in a number of places. For example, in Peter's language on the day of Pentecost, he said this in Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, now notice these words, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Does Peter intend to tell Israel that Jesus became the Lord at his resurrection? No, he means to say, has made it known that he is Lord and Christ. Jesus didn't become the Lord or become the anointed one through the resurrection, but was demonstrated to be or made known as Lord and Christ. So when the Hebrew writer is saying, today I have begotten you, it is not to be understood as the father adopting the Lord Jesus or the father creating the Lord Jesus, but rather, today I have made it known to Israel that you truly are my son. That is no twisting of the psalm. That is exactly how the apostles quote it and use it. And we ought to, nay, indeed have to, use it the way they use it. The father, with great love for the son at this point in the psalm, then promises him to receive the redeemed church out of every tribe and nation. In verse 8, the father says to the son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a very perplexing thing. Most of us do not take our heritage and dash it to pieces. What the psalmist is saying is that God has, through his great love for his son, given him a promise that he will have a great people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but that that uh, reception will take place only after his words cause the breaking of the rebellious kings and the rebellious nations. That as Jesus speaks his word by his church over centuries, he will cause the rebellious kings to come to nothing and he will ultimately judge them. The son's words we see in Revelation 1 are like a sword which proceeds out of his mouth. And that sword by which the King Jesus rides forth and the rod by which he rules over and reigns over the universe, he uses his word to dash them to pieces and to, as one popular uh, phrasing of Psalm 2 says, to to pound them into the dirt. I love that song. If you ever get a chance to listen to Psalm 2 by a group called My Soul Among Lions, it is a wonderful demonstration of this psalm that the Lord Jesus is bringing to nothing uh, all that which opposes him. The Lord Jesus takes the spoils of war as his sheep into his fold, and that becomes a treasured heritage. I... I think this is one of the most encouraging places in this psalm for for us as the church. Have you ever considered that you are not merely a sinner whom Jesus has atoned for and tolerates? You are part of his bride 
whom he cherishes and loves. You are his heritage, which he looked forward to and purchased by his faithful obedience at the cross. The Lord Jesus loves his redeemed remnant out of the nations which he has toppled, and he cherishes them and, and desires them and, and works for them. The love of the Son for the church is his special possession, and it is a wonderfully sweet promise. The Lord Jesus will not lightly discard his people. He will not lightly suffer their demise or their persecution. He has you under the category of treasure and gold. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Finally, the voice changes again back to the psalmist. Having foretold the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, he now speaks to every nation and man. In 1 Peter 1, we hear that David and every other prophet has been telling forth the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glories. And in this psalm, we have indeed at this time seen the sufferings of of the Lord Jesus Christ and his subsequent glories. The nations have thrown off restraint. They have cast off his law. They have tried to kill the anointed son. They have indeed killed that anointed son, but nevertheless, God is laughing at their futile attempts to stop his plans. And after this, he then begins to warn them. He warns Israel of a coming judgment, which was purely fulfilled in 70 AD as the, the Romans sieged and sacked the city. And he then begins to warn every people throughout time. The psalmist then raises his voice again, having introduced the theme, having heard and quoted Yahweh, having heard and quoted the son, the psalmist then now takes these teachings, these truths, and applies it to all nations at all times. He says in verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What an amazing passage. Just as God's wrath was poured out against Israel, so also God will judge all the nations which resist his rule. Now for you and I, this is a very hard idea because we live in a nation which resists his rule in many ways and in many places. The first way in which we have resisted his rule was the enslavement of thousands and millions of people for hundreds of years. That rejection of Christ's law has ended. However, almost as immediately as it was ended, we began to throw off his restraint in many other ways. First was the establishing of false weights and measures in the setting up of a defrauding monetary system in the 1910s. The creation, amen. The, <laughs> the creation of and the removal of the righteous requirement for divorce. We have in our nation a horrible thing which destroys people's lives called no-fault divorce in which we throw off God's restraint of two or three witnesses and we allow our judges to nullify what God has joined together without two or three witnesses just when the people in the marriage want to. 
Later, we established a horrific thing, perhaps our chief evil in our country, and indeed, perhaps the chief evil in the world today, the slaughter of more than 60 million children, as we have destroyed God's image bearers, systematically interrupting the place in which God was knitting together his image bearer, his son, his daughter, that man or woman to be in the womb. If you were here in 2015, you may remember the most recent time in which our country has thrown off restraint in the Obergefell versus Hodges decision in which the Supreme Court maintained that there exists a right, a God-given, in the jurisprudence of the Constitution, a God-given right for people who are men to marry and for people who are women to marry. And we understand that this is throwing off the restraint of Yahweh and his anointed. This is is throwing God's law back in his face and saying, we don't care. And so for us, when we hear this notion that the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns on the throne of heaven will one day dash into pieces all the nations which reject his ways, we ourselves must think soberly as Christians. We are not American Christians. We must be Christians. We must be sober-minded. We must not be deluded by absurd love of country over and against the ways of God. We must live with sobriety. And we must live as prophetic witnesses against the evils which still exist in our, to, in our day today. We must be, as Jesus told his people, we must be salt and we must be light. We must attempt to stop corruption. We must expose evil deeds. So therefore, as Christians today, hearing Psalm 2, knowing that it is not speaking about King David or King Solomon, but rather King Jesus, we must therefore live accordingly. Only in turning to Christ may the kings of the earth reverently bow down and submit to the Lord Jesus. Does this passage mean that all nations will be thoroughly Christianized? No, what it does mean is that God will defeat all of his enemies. We know that in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. Later, Paul says to the Christians in Romans, I believe it is chapter 14, maybe 15, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Under your feet. It is the body of Christ which is going to trample on his enemies. And indeed, when you look at the history of the world, for the last 2,000 years, the church has wonderfully taken victory. If you want a great example, go study the history of the Norse people. There were many times in which the gospel came in and hundreds of Christians laid down their lives and the kings of the, the Norse, the Vikings, the Scandinavians began to lay down their arms and end their raping and pillaging of the rest of the nations. The church throughout the 2,000 years since Christ's life has always been salt and light. And it is up to us to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, continue on in their stead. Only in turning to Christ do any nations have any chance at kissing the Son, lest he become wrathful against them. While the patience of the Lord stands, the nations of the earth should repent, and all men should take refuge in him. Throughout history, God has brought calamity on every nation which has pursued violence, greed, and oppression. 
And only in turning to Christ can nations and indeed all tribes of men, all cultures, actually willingly submit to the Lord Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, we have much work to do, but we have much work to do knowing that we are empowered by the King's Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, who rules and reigns, and that Spirit is enabling us to do mighty exploits in the earth. I believe last week, uh, Brother Andy had mentioned that the, the people of the Lord would volunteer themselves freely in the day of your power. That's not a particular day. That wasn't the day of Pentecost alone. That is the now eternal day, which is breaking into our time here, by which the Lord Jesus is powerfully moving through his people in every nation. So I would encourage you, be salt, be light. Uh, don't speak truth to power, speak truth to wickedness. And, and love the Lord Jesus and love your neighbor by bringing his word to bear in every sphere of life. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we thank you for Psalm 2. We thank you for the way the apostles use it to show forth the suffering of Jesus Christ and his subsequent glories. Lord, we love your word. We pray that you would cause us to be people who are able to read your word and to see how it speaks of your son and that by your Holy Spirit, your son would not merely reign in our hearts alone, but he would reign through our lives, in our communities, in our country. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.